It's really easy to think about slavery as this monolithic experience that happened to 12 million people 200 years ago that we can kind of, oh, that was bad, it happened, it's over. I don't really have to process that too much, right? It's this thing that happened, I can't really think about it uh, too detailed. How could you not want to uh, examine the lives of, of enslaved people when you're examining history? It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Following Harriet. In the last episode, we left Harriet's story hanging. She was called to Fort Monroe to serve as grand matron of the hospital that treated contraband, formerly enslaved people who'd escaped to freedom. But when she arrived, she was quickly put to work cooking and doing laundry. She stayed for just a couple of months, and there's no official record of any additional work with the Union Army after that. We know she settled into a quieter life in Auburn, New York, surrounded by her parents and family. She fell in love with a bricklayer who was two decades younger than her, and they married and adopted a baby girl named Gertie. Harriet worked as a domestic and saved money to open up the Harriet Tubman Home, a place for elderly and indigent African Americans. And... She was a suffragist. When the war ended, the amendments to the Constitution were passed and ratified, the last being the the 15th Amendment, giving black men the right to vote. Many of Harriet Tubman's allies, old friends, white women, were infuriated. They were infuriated that black men were given the right to vote before them. Rutgers historian Erica Armstrong Dunbar. And there's this sort of interesting relationship that Harriet Tubman has with uh, white suffragists. You know, these were many of these suffragists were abolitionists of old. They were people who gave support to Tubman, both financially and helped her uh, with her family members, with her parents. And so even though they on occasion... <laughs> espoused ideas that were less than progressive regarding the right to vote. Tubman was, I think, generationally a bit of in a bit of a sort of sandwich. She was someone who respected and really connected to, in some ways, white women abolitionists, people like Susan B. Anthony and others that she was a part of their organization. She would speak at their events. But it became increasingly difficult to do that as black women became much more sort of aggravated and in some some ways infuriated with what appeared to be a, a mounting white suffragist movement among women, uh, a movement that didn't appear to have a place for black women. Hmm. Well, I would say that I probably have a contrarian view of that because I think that Harriet Tubman saw herself as a champion of African Americans, her race. Catherine Clinton is a historian at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and author of the biography Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. She was a champion also of African American women and other women, and I believe during her lifetime, She reached across the color line, she reached across the gender line, and she worked quite well in many different 
domains. I, I think she wasn't someone who worked within the concept that African-American women needed a separate movement. The strategy of suffragists in the 1890s was to bow to racism and to allow for this Southern suffrage strategy, which was to pander or promote white racism and suggest that women needed the vote because women was intended at that time to exclude black women because the inclusion of white women in the vote would allow for white women to secure a better electorate, which would not allow the indigent, the uninformed, the, quote, colored races to participate on the ballot. So white women in the South definitely used racist principles to advance this cause of suffrage. The racial rift came to a head in March of 1913 in Washington, D.C., at an event organized by the National American Woman Suffrage Association. It was the first suffrage parade in the nation's capital. On the day of the event, more than 60 black women who had traveled from Illinois were told they'd have to march in the back so they wouldn't upset the Southern delegates. Pioneering investigative journalist and early civil rights activist Ida B. Wells Barnett refused to do that. And she says to to the delegation of Illinois that I'm either going to march with you or not march at all. And so it's interesting that we have right at the moment in which Tubman is really almost laying on her on her deathbed that the the push for suffrage would continue and it would continue with this very kind of um, divisive and tense relationship between black and white suffragists, a relationship that never really mended itself, to be perfectly honest. On March 10, 1913, Harriet Tubman died of pneumonia in Auburn, New York, surrounded by family and friends. She was about 90 years old. Just before she died, she told those in the room, I go to prepare a place for you. Tubman was buried with semi-military honors at Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn. If you'd like to learn more about visiting places that tell the story of Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, and the 19th century African-American experience, especially in the state of Virginia, go to virginia.org slash Harriet. You got to be miles away from here for dawn. Where is she? Follow that north star. If there are no stars, just follow the river. Listen for them. Fear is your enemy. Whoa. Easy now. I'm going to be free or die. I got very excited and my heart started racing. And uh, because I had such a kind of physiological reaction, I thought, well, this must be interesting. It was kind of terrifying and enticing at the same time. Casey Lemons is a professor and a filmmaker. She's the director of Harriet, a new biopic from Focus Features. I knew people had been trying to make a Harriet Tubman film for a, a very long time. And it was incredibly appealing once I understood really what they were trying to do to make kind of an inspirational um, film with a young black woman as a protagonist that was Harriet Tubman. I mean, that was kind of an incredible challenge and and something that um, really seemed worth doing. She wanted to focus on Harriet as a young woman, her self-emancipation, and work with the Underground Railroad. 
she's she's really almost an action hero you know she um the story is inherently full of adventure and she was doing these incredible things and and it's hard i think that that's hard to access it's like what actually gives a person that courage what is you know what is it like to be you know 27 years old and you know doing these things and i think that that was something that that we really wanted to bring you know we really wanted to inspire young women the film stars Cynthia Erivo, who won a Tony Award for her role as Celie in the 2015 Broadway revival of The Color Purple. Lemon says she brings a physicality and depth to the portrayal of a woman who was so much more than what we learned in elementary school. Absolutely a badass and absolutely a tough woman. But what we also wanted to bring was her femininity and her womanhood, you know, her um, her pain. And she had heartbreak in her life and she... Um, you know, th- there was a lot of loss. You know, she went back for her husband. That's what motivated, um, uh, you know, one of her returns was to, to get her husband. And um, it's very heartbreaking. You know, he breaks her heart. And so I wanted you to see that, you know. We know that she said she screamed uh, when she found out that, that he, he wasn't going to come with her. He had married someone else. And um, and so I wanted you to get next to her, her howl, her inner grief at that separation. Much of the film was shot at Berkeley Plantation, about a half-hour drive from Colonial Williamsburg. At one time, Berkeley was home to a thousand slaves. I'm very sensitive, and so there, there were locations where we scouted um, that frightened me. I just, I, there was too much agony, you know, and I could feel it. And so every place is going to be complicated, but we we shot in a place that undoubtedly was filled with pain and sorrow, but was was more complicated than horrific, you know what I mean? It, or at least the, the land did not um, send me running. I was interested in it, you know? I, I, I was interested in um, locations that had a not a hostile vibe, but a very deep and um, complex vibe, and where I felt the sacredness of a people and their struggle Berkeley was settled in 1619 and claims to have hosted the first Thanksgiving in America. Berkeley was the birthplace of Benjamin Harrison V, signer of the Declaration of Independence and governor of Virginia, as well as his son, William Henry Harrison, the ninth president of the U.S. During the Civil War, Berkeley was occupied by General George McClellan's Union Army. The familiar tune Taps was composed here. Today, Berkeley Plantation is a tourist attraction. We're going to start our tour with how it all began. And folks, the tour guide doesn't shy away from the more challenging part of this site's history, and neither do the exhibits. In one room, you can thumb through dozens of pages of bills of sale for enslaved people. You can also see advertisements for those who'd gone missing. Malcolm Jamie Jameson, whose grandfather was a drummer boy in McClellan's army while they were stationed at Berkeley, owns Berkeley Plantation. We we do experience some pushback, and um, these people need to be need to see the light. They need to know the truth. And everyone's from different backgrounds, and one thing and another. But you know, um, you can live in ignorance, or you can live in prejudice. But you're not living in fact. None of this would be possible without the slaves. They were absolutely vital to the formation of this country and to the, the wonderful historic buildings we have today. 
um, history deniers are dangerous. You know, I feel that that's a very dangerous mentality, and um, and it's something a disease our country is suffering from. And one thing that I've got to say I was impressed by in Virginia was people were willing to present those stories, the stories of the people that had been enslaved there and were working there and had helped build these places, you know, and are so um, fundamental to the history of our country. Across Virginia, many plantations and museums are changing the way they've traditionally told the story of enslavement. You go to plantation museums and you kind of know that there's going to be that exhibit about slavery in the basement and it's going to be, you know, done in earth tone colors and it's going to be all about hard work and poor living conditions. Christian Coates is director of education and visitor engagement at James Madison's Montpelier. And that's not an that's not a really accurate picture of slavery. You know, the poor living conditions and the hard work weren't the worst parts of slavery and there weren't a whole lot of happy endings to people's stories. And so we wanted to give uh, visitors to Montpelier a more realistic understanding of what slavery was all about. It's really easy to think about slavery as this monolithic experience that happened to 12 million people 200 years ago, that we can kind of, oh, that was bad, it happened, it's over. I don't really have to process that too much, right? It's this thing that happened, I can't really think about it uh, too detailed. But when you do break it down, to individual stories. When you think about that little girl who whose mother was taken away from her, when you think about that grandmother whose family was scattered to the winds, you know, and you can start to think about the experiences that people had and relate to them in some way, it becomes a lot harder for us to, to process. And we begin to empathize with the people who were enslaved. Stephanie Arduini, Director of Education at the American Civil War Museum. What I think is important to look at is to recognize the truth of what happened. Everybody's history is part of our history. We have to know the history of slavery. We have to know the history of the Confederacy. We have to know the history of all of this and sit with those uncomfortable truths because people who were probably inherently good people made choices that had bad consequences or we look at today as being incredibly contradictory but that was normal didn't mean that they weren't questioning those complexities at the time when people say we shouldn't judge folks with our standards that lived 150 years ago so therefore we shouldn't talk about people enslaving people I find that problematic only because there were people questioning that system then. And it has to give weight to the people who stood up and made those brave choices to say this is wrong and we shouldn't continue that anymore. We needed to own the fact that our guy, James Madison, political genius, father of the Constitution, you know, author of the Bill of Rights, this guy codified the institution of slavery. He baked it into the United States Constitution. And that decision has repercussions. And 1865, with the passage of the 13th Amendment, doesn't just end the story of slavery in the United States. There's a, there's a legacy to the institution of slavery that, that survives to this very day. And people in Charlottesville certainly know all about what that legacy looks like. Historian Ed Ayers lives in Charlottesville. Anyone who's lived in Virginia or even visited Virginia and Charlottesville would have been shocked that Charlottesville, of all places, would have been the place where this terrible drama played out. Uh, Charlottesville was equated with either Thomas Jefferson or with today and wineries and things, right? There's like a, an absence 
of a continuing story of how Charlottesville had evolved. I think that the people of Unite the Right took advantage of that amnesia to come to Charlottesville and claim the mantle of Thomas Jefferson and then claim the mantle of Robert E. Lee, who anomalously standing in the middle of this beautiful college town because people didn't think Charlottesville could ever have such a thing, precisely because it was so liberal and enlightened. Mr. Jefferson's university, Mr. Jefferson's town, and frankly, very progressive in its politics. Monticello's director of African-American history, Naya Bates. You know, I think we're living through an interesting political moment um, where for me as a black woman, it is very difficult to do this job every day and to read about the brutality enacted upon these enslaved families, um, to read examples of Jefferson's overseers being violent, uh, of beating a child who was sick uh, until he couldn't stand up. I mean, sometimes reading those things and then going home and seeing the news about what is still going on in our society, uh, the ways that the legacies of slavery are still carrying out. Some days it's it's a lot harder than others to keep it together. So I will say most of the time I leave feeling like the work that we are doing is improving the world. And those are the best days, right? That uh, the work that we do here to tell honest stories about our past and the roots of our nation in slavery uh, help us understand the moment that we're living in and help us see how easy it is to perhaps uh, slip back into a time that was unjust for a lot of people and how a lot of our current injustices stem from slavery. So where are we? What can we learn from the life of Harriet Tubman? How does it apply today? To understand what Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman accomplished, we need to have a full accounting of what they were up against. This is not political correctness. This is not just telling you this because somebody else expects me to. It's the truth, and it's the fuller story. And it expands the cast of characters, and it expands our imagining of what America has been. In some ways, it makes you appreciate where we are now. We can learn so much from the enslaved experience. First and foremost, we can learn that we are extremely privileged. We can learn that if our iPhone doesn't work or if our car isn't working, that pales in comparison to not being able to have power over your own body. I think it's invaluable to know or expand the narratives as it relates to the black experience. Uh, We know about the horrors of enslavement and the slave trade, but we also know about the triumphs in the midst of tragedies. These accomplishments in the face of adversity are important. They're not important just for black Americans, but they're important because they serve as a source of inspiration for all. I think it's good to be reminded of what can be achieved if your courage outweighs your fear. So that's that's what I take away. I think we bow under the weight of the world and and, um, it just seems too much. The problems are too insurmountable. But when you look at a story of what one young woman achieved just by being brave, she wasn't fearless. You know, she had fear, 
but she had determination and her courage outweighed her fear. And I think that that's what we need in this time right now. Our courage needs to outweigh our fear. And we need to believe that through force of will, we can change things. We can change our country. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Following Harriet. If you'd like to learn more about visiting places that tell the story of Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad, and the 19th century African-American experience, especially in the state of Virginia, go to virginia.org slash Harriet. In this episode, we heard from historians Ed Ayers, Elvatrice Belchess, Jessica Millward, Catherine Clinton, and Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Catherine wrote a deeply researched biography of Harriet called Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. And Erica has a new book out called She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman. We also heard from Naya Bates and Gail Jessup White from Jefferson's Monticello, Christian Coates from Madison's Montpelier, Stephanie Arduini of the American Civil War Museum, Casey Lemons, director of the new Focus Features biopic called Harriet, and Malcolm Jamie Jameson, who owns the Berkeley Plantation where parts of the film were shot. Special research thanks to the Black History Museum in Richmond and the city of Petersburg, Virginia, and the Petersburg Preservation Task Force. We had production assistants from Derek Clements, Kenny Burns, Maura Curry, Shana Deloria, and Miranda Fulmore. Following Harriet is a production by Ingredient Creative, with Tanya Ott as the writer and director and Tanner Latham as executive producer. Following Harriet is sponsored by the Virginia Tourism Corporation and the Virginia Film Office. <laughs>